Welcome to chat for November 30th. We got a great show for you lined up today. Lots of technical topics. Actually, we'll be starting it off with talking about Wharf Kit by Gray Mass. We'll be talking about Pomelo updates. We've got Zach Gall right now in Decentral in Miami talking layer ones. Uh, we'll be talking about new ENF Twitter spaces, DCAFE. Uh, we're also going to be talking about a new Antelope Coalition request for proposal regarding RAM limitation fixes and announcing the Trust EVM Hackathon Round 3. We got some nice special guests lined up for everyone this week, including Aaron Cox from Grey Mass, Nathan James, Head of Developer Relations for the ENF, mm-hmm. and Yves Larose, Founder and CEO of the EOS Network Foundation, and of course, all of you. So EOS is a layer one smart contract platform that is governed by its community. It's the only crypto network that has had a foundation emerge organically from within the community years after the launch of the network. Since the creation of the EOS Network Foundation one year ago, the new EOS has seen an incredible acceleration of progress and innovation. The EOS Network Foundation has built an excellent team that has been able to quickly establish essential frameworks that empower the EOS community to do its best work and live its best life. Through foundational initiatives like the Recognition Grants, the Blue Paper Research Series, the Pomelo Crowdfunding Platform, the Direct Investment Frameworks, and the ongoing EOS Roadshow, the community has been activated and energized to a level not seen since the launch of the network. Many of these initiatives are starting to blossom, such as the recent success of Recover Plus, the ongoing promotion surrounding Yield Plus that has led to a massive surge of TVL on EOS and especially on DeFi Box, a leading EOS DeFi protocol, which has seen their new Vault product quickly attract over 4.4 million EOS. Other recent Recently blossoming initiatives includes the ongoing season four of the Pomelo crowdfunding platform, as well as lots of great technical progress in many aspects, some of which we'll be talking about today on this show. EOS is in the midst of an epic narrative reversal, and the new EOS has the potential to become the greatest crypto comeback story of all time. My name is Stefan. I'm one of the co-founders of EOS Nation, currently a top-ranked block producer on EOS and other antelope chains. I'm happy and honored to be your host for today. So thank you for everyone joining us in the Discord live chat. We've got over 40 people already in here. That's great. Please feel free to jump on stage with me at any time. We'd love to hear your comments, thoughts, questions, and reactions to the news of the week. And shout out to everyone listening on other platforms such as YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Please join us on Discord at discord.gg front slash EOS dash network. Today we're, we're talking about EOS, but also the Antelope ecosystem. Antelope is the name for the community-owned blockchain software that powers a variety of highly performant blockchain networks, such as EOS, Telos, Wax, UX, and many others. All right, so before we get to the good stuff, uh, I see you guys are already sharing lots of pics in the chat. Love to see it. Uh, if you do come on stage, we appreciate you uh, sharing your name and team when you come on. It helps everyone understand a bit more context where these comments are coming from. And of course, we're doing our pop token giveaway every fireside. So you can go to the pop bot chat in the new fun section here on the Discord server and register your EOS account to receive your pop token for today. And the road to 10K promo is still going on. We're, we're just 
around 6,400 members now on the server. When we reach 7,000, we'll be handing out EOS prizes, NFT prizes to everyone who's created an, a custom link, custom invite link, and shared it with their friends, and you know, it's helped grow the server. All right, so let's get into it. Um, we'll start off with a heavy hitter. I'd like to invite Aaron Cox of Grey Mass on stage to talk a bit about Warfkit. Why, hello there. Hey, hey. Um, we, uh, I don't know exactly where to dive into this. It's quite the big topic, but uh, I guess so a little bit of backstory is this is one of the projects that was proposed uh, early, early in the year in the Wallet Plus Blue Paper that the ENF commissioned. Uh, it was, the goal was to create a framework for uh, web developers to be able to more easily create apps and to be able to do things that um, are not easy to do today with the current tooling we have. Uh, I guess some examples that you guys will probably recognize of stuff in that category would be things like IBC transactions, uh, abstracting away the CPU net and RAM costs. If you're an Anchor user, you probably have seen us do that within Anchor, uh, you know, where it's like recovering resources or we prompt a fee that says, you know, oh, if you pay 0. 0.000 or EOS or whatever will cover the RAM costs and will pay for the CPU and the net of the transaction. And it just, like it just in general makes that user experience so much easier because you don't need to disconnect from what you were doing and go manage your account. Like, you know, you don't have to stop at the gas station in that regard. Um, so that's kind of the goal of this project. And we started working on it in earnest probably in September, I want to say. Time's just been flying by, so my dates may be a little fuzzy. Um, and just, I think it was last week or the week before, we announced kind of the name and the brand for this, and we're calling it Wharf. All of it's going to be found under Wharf Kit as a branding. Uh, so if you go to wharfkit.com or if you go to github.com slash wharfkit, uh, those are going to be where this project is going to live. The website right now, we already launched it. We want to try to do this uh, kind of radically different than we've done a lot of our projects in the past. We launched the website immediately, and we are now publishing all of the calls that we do. Uh, they're scheduled to be weekly, but we've been doing bi-weekly right now just to kind of slowly start this process. Um, because we want developers in this community to engage, and we want, if you're interested in this topic, for you to be able to keep up on what's happening. Um, and we're going to slowly evolve the website over time uh, to, right now, it's kind of uh, a community site for developers to keep up on the videos, like I was mentioning. But it will turn into a site with guides, tutorials, videos, and documentation. It will be, hopefully, like the, the homepage of a developer that if they're building some sort of Antelope-based web application, they can go here to get what they need. We're exclusively focusing for now on the, the client development, like what the user experience would be in the browser of you uh, interacting with an Antelope web application. But hopefully, the, the, like, the knowledge we're bringing to this framework and like, the techniques will be able to be applicable to non-web things. like mobile apps or video games or whatever other kind of application you could imagine that needs this type of deep integration. 
Um, and maybe there will even be some opportunities for smart contract development toolkits to leverage some of the tooling that Wharf will offer. Um, so all in all, that's the kind of the high-level overview of where we're going with this. We're excited about it. We're excited about the branding. Uh, it's got a pretty uh, nerdy feel to it, which is cool. It's got a little bit of terminal. It looks like a W. It looks like a 3. It's kind of Web3. Uh, there's a lot of symbolism behind the direction we're going with the brand, which I could nerd out about. Um, Please and do. yeah, we're making good progress. What was that? I, I would love to hear more about the nerd branding rants about the logo. <laughs> so I, I guess the backstory on that is um, back in my Steam days, which was kind of the first blockchain that I really got into, um, like development wise, I was into crypto before Steam, but Steam is where my interests of web technologies and blockchain kind of collided and I started working. And the first uh, wallet I started working on was called Vessel, like a ship. And that kind of kicked off this nautical theme that I've been chasing ever since because really crypto at this point, you can call it the Wild West, but you could also consider crypto to be kind of this vast ocean. It's it's dangerous. There's a lot of unknowns. You can traverse it. There are safe harbors. Uh, there, there's just a lot of symbolism between this nautical theme and crypto. So that's also where the name Anchor came from for the wallet, as well as Lighthouse and a number of other projects that we have kind of in the background that all have these kind of names. And Wharf is the Wharf is where you know you if you were out to sea. When you wanted to come back to land, you would use a dock or a wharf to either unload people, goods, passengers, whatever. And with the Antelope brand being so land-based, this is now kind of a transitional point for the brand that we've been chasing to, um, in that turbulent sea, to, to the land that this bigger brand now represents. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, when you think about a wharf, you think about stability. You think about the stability that the land provides out into the sea. Uh, also, in that, like businesses may have their own piers or wharfs or docks to encourage people to visit. That also kind of ties back into applications wanting to bring users in. It's that you know facilitation of commerce that these types of objects in the real world actually provide to whether it's a restaurant on our lake or something on a river or something on the coast of the ocean. It's, there's a, a lot of that good uh, symbolism that if you look deep enough into the branding, you'll be able to find. So uh, we have a whole presentation. Uh, it's, I don't think it's linked to from the website yet. Not sure if we have a link to it yet, honestly, but um, it's a big PDF that dives into a lot of the symbolism, a lot of the goals we had with the brand, and then how we took that kind of sort of real-world object, being the wharf, and we made it a little bit more nerdy by using terminal colors, like that green. It is, it is old-school computer terminal kind of color um, with the layers and the shapes. The shapes are curved, gets away, but it almost still has an 8-bit feel. Uh, we, <laughs> our team spent a lot of time iterating on what this brand should look like to make sure that it 
resonated with developers and it would be something that is welcoming to them and something that would help them build their business. Because ultimately that's the goal of Wharf. It's not a standalone thing in that, you know, like you as an everyday user will use, but it is going to be a component of somebody else who's building an application that hopefully, you know, will be successful and we'll all be excited to use. Awesome. I don't know if you noticed, I downloaded a Wharf sound effect, played it a few times while you were talking. Trying Did to you? I couldn't hear branding. it. <laughs> it's very subtle. It's very That's subtle. It. I see, <laughs> yeah. Um, I see Mara here in the chat sharing a Wharf brand presentation. There we go. Watch. So that's great. Um, is Mara part of the Graymass team? I'm not sure yep. if I've uh, heard of yep. Mara. Before. Mara is on our team. I I didn't think she was here in Discord with us, but she is. So that's awesome. Um, and that video, Weekly Call 2, is the one where we presented the brand. I kind of dove into this topic for maybe 30 to 40 minutes, and then we fielded some questions. Um, and the PDF that was linked is the version one that we have shared in the Wharf Telegram channel, uh, which I think it is t.me slash Wharf Kit. Yeah, Wharf Kit. We're using Wharf Kit everywhere, even though we might just say Wharf. There you go. Yeah, I shared a bunch of links as well to the Twitter, to your Medium article. The and the ability to just meme off of Star Wars for this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> You'll notice in some of the branding stuff, like we used words like turbo lift or replicator or some other just generic Star Wars worlds as lore mips. Star Trek, right? Yes, yeah, Star, Star Trek. Trek. Sorry. Uh -oh. There was a Star uh -oh. Wars meme as well. And I think that's what I was staring at <laughs> with the dog. Foreigner got you. Foreigner <laughs> yeah. got you good on that one. Yeah, I did. Um, you dropped a nice little subtle flex there. Uh, yeah? Yeah, when you said that you started in crypto before Steam, I'm just wondering, when did you start getting into crypto? Uh, 2013, maybe. Uh, nice. Somewhere around there. It was back, it might be before that too. I don't know the exact time. I'd have to go look. Um, but it was when Bitcoin was still mineable on CPUs. Uh, I tried getting it set up. I think I may have failed. I may have gotten it working. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I was starting to really look at it as like, oh, what is this cool new distributed technology? And then I got into things like Burst Coin, which was uh, disk space utilization. And obviously some of those earlier ones like Litecoin and like just starting to explore those. But really my interest wasn't super peaked until Steam because I... My career before crypto was all content and publishing systems, mainly focused in the video game industry. So it was all about sharing text. It wasn't like in the financial side of things. Um, and then when somebody, Steam was like, hey, we're going to put content on the blockchain. That's where I was like, oh, I know this world. Very cool. Very cool. Love hearing about your background. Um, it's gotten me curious, actually. Uh, let's see in the chat. What year all of you got into crypto or purchased your first crypto? Myself was January 3rd, 2017. Purchased my first Bitcoin at a thousand US dollars. I heard about Bitcoin when it was launched back on the Slashdot forums. I didn't understand the vast majority of the posts on there. It was way too technical, but I was still curious. Heard about this decentralized digital currency. I was like, oh man, for sure that's going to be a thing in the future. How much do these cost? Oh, two pennies per Bitcoin. Oh, 
eh, I should, should buy $100 of this stuff. Looked around for a few minutes on the web, could not find out how to buy, forgot about it. Heard about it again, 25 cents, oh no, I missed the boat. Dollar, oh no, I missed the boat. $10, oh no, anyways. Finally, I decided to stop missing boats when it hit uh, $1,000 in 2017 here. Okay, cool, we got lots of, uh, lots of answers. We got Glue Dog claiming 2013. We've got Andrew Dogecoin in 2016, nice intro. John Paul, 2012. Yves Larose coming in with the 2010. Mark Stair, 2017, Foreigner, 2017, a few 2017s as well. Mara, Summer 2016, very nice. Rob, coming in with the 2012 in college, awesome. Denis, 2017, that's actually, yeah, late 2017. I got got Denis to come over to my place, actually, in December. Finally like got the him. Worst, the worst time to be buying crypto. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much, but you did, uh, you did all right for yourself anyways. Um, oh, CAC 2011, Winnie 2014, good stuff guys, Martin 2013, awesome, Yevin sold all his Bitcoin at 600, game over sir, thanks for playing. Um, Alright, any uh, questions from the crowd about, uh, for Aaron or about uh, Warf Kit by Graymas, to me it sounds all wonderful, but as a non-developer, I think my appreciation of it may be limited. So yeah, I'd love to hear... I, uh... I have some questions, and so it's go. for those, I guess, that have not been following the EOS main chat, uh, because this came up uh, over the last week or so. Aaron, can you re-explain, because uh, you already did, but how, because we're talking about resource management, how EOS effectively right now, I don't recall where the discussion started, but how it's still very difficult to interact with EOS and how unless you're using Anchor, um, a lot of what you guys have built in terms of uh, uh, for fuel, et cetera, is still very difficult for people. But how Wharf will essentially be able to bring about that functionality to others that aren't necessarily leveraging Anchor, for example. Or can you yeah. touch upon that? Yeah, absolutely. It in that EOS main Telegram channel, it comes up a lot. That's like EOS is still hard to use, and then people debate about the like the merits of power up and staking and things like that. Um, and really, like none of those systems are super great from a user perspective because you need to understand what CPU is and what net is and what RAM is. And while we have improved the system in the back end, like we moved from staking to Rex to power up those all had that kind of underlying concept that you still needed to know what these three things were. You needed, like, what's a millisecond of CPU? And then how many milliseconds of CPU does it take to perform a transaction or whatever? Um, that's kind of been the fundamental thing that we've never pushed over the finish line to actually address from the user experience. We, on the Anchor side... Um, we started exploring this a couple years ago with Fuel. I think Fuel launched in late 2019 or something. Uh, and Fuel only has ever worked in our SDKs. You know, you're using the Anchor SDKs to interact with the Anchor wallet. And the reason that we were able to even do this is because we started writing our own SDKs. We kind of ditched everything that had existed up until that point that everyone else was using. And we kind of fundamentally broke all of those ideas apart and then built what 
we have called EOSIO core um, over the following like two years or something like that. This core is going to be the um, kind of the bedrock of Wharf. Like it, all of its uh, components will be exposed through Wharf. You probably won't need to know what they are, but um, as a developer, that sort of stuff, having access to that is super important. Um, so now what we are doing with Wharf is we're taking everything that we've learned to do with Core, and we are bringing that into Wharf so that way you don't need Anchor to use the techniques that we are using right now. Um, it was It's kind of impossible to do in UAL. If you're a developer in the space, you've probably been exposed to UAL. Uh, it's the framework that Block One did probably in 2019, 2020 to let you log into websites um, with any wallet, like the token pockets, the scatters, the anchors, that sort of thing. Um, but it's it's really hard to cover things like resources with that. So we're taking everything we learned over the course of that, like the last three years or so, taking these approaches and making it so that in Wharf, there is actually a plugin system where you can drop in a resource provider plug plugin like Fuel or anything else that a developer wants to create. Um, and it will just make your application work with those approaches, those kind of protocols, um, with any wallet without the requirement of something like Anchor. Um, so at a, I guess at a high level... Interesting. I think is because a lot of the debate is people say EOS is still very difficult to use. And then the answer is always, no, it's not just use anchor yeah. because they've made it easy. And then people say, but I don't want to use this wallet. I want to use a different wallet or I want to use a different way to access. And up until now it's been impossible. And I guess that's what's gotten me excited. But this specific part of Wharf is the different components, as you mentioned, the different building blocks are now going to be made available which then further decentralizes the functionality of being able to access that function without necessarily needing to go to a particular vendor, so to speak. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that what we see from this is that there's no longer the, hey, it's really hard to use because it will not be the case. Because for a lot of people, it is not hard to use right now. The yeah. res resources have been abstracted away for many people now for more than a year. And the only problem is, is that it like centralizes it into depending on one application like Anchor. Correct. Or like Correct. I think Token Pocket also does resource management just differently. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it, it creates vendor lock-in. And that is not good for an open ecosystem like this. Um, you, as a user, should have a choice. And where you manage your private keys, where you manage your accounts, all of that kind of thing. Um, because being super dependent on one product is just like that is a point of failure for the ecosystem. And a decentralized ecosystem shouldn't have a singular point of failure that if it goes down, severe, severely degradates the user experience. So as much as like I would love for a lot of people to use Anchor, there need to be alternatives and those alternatives need to be successful and they need those same features. It just unless they invest just as much time as we did building those features, they can't have them right now until the building blocks of something like Wharf exist. Yeah. Hey, this is Eric. Can I hop in? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And I think something you said 
that I really like about it is it's um, the framework isn't opinionated. Like you said, you get your choices of how to manage the different things you want. And you can build opinionated applications on top of that. But like just take private key management. You could store that, you know, in a, in a vault for some provider service. You could store it on your own hardware wallet. You know, you can store it lots of different places. And having a framework that works for that, I think that's great. It's a lot easier to use. That's just one example. Absolutely. And we're still really early on. And I think resource management is probably the easiest example for everyone here who's used the EOS or any Antelope network to understand. But over the course of the next year or more, IBC is going to become the same thing where we're going to have IBC right away. It's going to be kind of hard to use. And we need the platform to exist. Hopefully, Worf will accomplish this to make that easy for us to be able to transfer, I don't know, tokens from one network to the other or NFTs or whatever other magical uh, powers that IBC is going to unlock to allow these kinds of networks to collaborate. Yeah, can I jump in for two seconds? Absolutely. I, speaking of the main Telegram chat, I, w- I was part of that. I forget who started it, but it did pique my interest. And then if anyone caught just today, I was, I'm using a, a chain that came out a year and a half after EOS launched, and it was an abysmal experience, header hash graph. Not to just be like, header is the problem. There's so many chains operate fundamentally exactly like hetera so it just happened to be hashgraph that i was on today and um what a slap in the face to have been using eos and even with power up in the state it's in thanks to anchor as you guys were talking about i i really haven't been bothered by the concept of resources because i i don't do a lot of complex things on chain right now you know i stake i unstake i transfer you know send receives and 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 I look at different DeFi involvement, but I never get to a situation where I'm trapped in EOS, where that happened to me this morning on Hashgraph. And I have I have a lot of Hashgraph. It's not like I'm broken Hashgraph. And and I'm just a simple transfer today. Despite having a lot of Hashgraph, I couldn't move it. It's it's just stuck. It's trapped in in prison basically, in a popular staking contract. And all that's necessary to transfer is like 3.9 HBAR. Okay, that's it's less than 20 cents. Okay, it doesn't sound like a big problem, but that's 300% increase in the transaction fees from when I first staked it in May. Okay, that's how do I how do I leave change that looks in the future for a 300% transaction cost increase? I I didn't expect that. I had, uh, you know, I put cushion in there, but not 300% cushion for a wild transaction increase. So anyways, I left my process now. I'm, I'm stuck for six days because I have to go back into the legacy finance system and do ACH, wait for things to settle, wait for the exchange to allow me to withdraw my new HBAR and then inject that into the network so I can pay that 20 cent transaction cost. It's... It's insanity. Like, how is that the future of finance? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a common trend for a lot of chains to they focus on the back end. 
and the user experience, like the developers don't use their own product as much as they probably should. The user experience kind of suffers in that regard. Um, I've used Hedera as well, and it's, it feels like one of those networks. And while the backend looks like it has some promising aspects to it, it's just this lack of attention towards the front, the user experience, how these things can be done, and you know, investing the appropriate amount of resources to make that happen. So it's awesome to see that we're getting the opportunity to do that in the Antelope space now, uh, after you know, a couple years of not having much progress on that front. Um, but that's, that's how we reach adoption, is making the user experience good. Like it doesn't matter necessarily how fast the chain goes. To a certain degree, it does matter. But um, it's about whether or not you're going to get stuck or whether or not it's confusing or how it's presented to you as a user and how you get onto the network itself. There's a few comments in chat about account creation. And that still is a significant hurdle for a lot of these chains, including uh, EOS. You know? we, we have some somewhat easy to use processes, but there's a lot of room for growth. Hey, Daniel here. One thing I'll add is creating good user experiences is really hard. Like a lot of dev work goes into creating a user, a good user experience, which is a huge part of why I'm so excited about these SDKs is because you guys are doing a lot of this hard work that now the developers building their app aren't going to have to think about it anymore. Uh, you know, I've, sh I've shared this example before when we were building Pomelo, the you know, leading up to the first season, the number of hours we spent just to make the kind of that login flow, linking your wallet flow work relatively nice for the users. And it's still a lot of long way to go. Um, it was a lot of work. If we had SDKs that actually already solved all of that, we would have spent that time on building features for Pomelo instead. And, and um, so, yeah, I'm really look, looking forward to seeing how the ecosystem develops more rapidly just because it's going to be so much easier for apps to build great user experiences. Super excited for that as well. I can definitely say that. Um, and I think along that regard, I think one of, the, one of the big things kind of going back to resources is... Um, the way that this is all going to be built is that it's going to be flexible enough to handle any sort of resource model. Like using Pomelo as an example, if Pomelo wants to use fuel to pay for resources, cool, plug in for that. If Pomelo wants to create its own resource system, instead of like reinventing your front end to work with that, we'll just develop a small modular plugin to handle that part of the process. Um, and going even future facing or like forward looking, uh, if there's a new resource model that gets deployed onto the network, let's say like contract pays becomes available, we figure out a way to solve that problem and it exists. That is yet another just plugin that you're going to be able to drop into your front end and all of a sudden contract pays works. It is now a part of your platform without you having to invent that wheel to let the contract pay for the transactions themselves. It, it's this new approach to how we form transactions within Worf's session kit that will allow you to just hook into these various points during that process and 
kind of make it do whatever you need it to do. It's those building blocks. It is, you know, we're, we're giving you the Legos to be able to do this kind of thing if you want them. And if you just want to focus on your app, if you just want to build Pomelo and use what exists, cool, that should work too. And it should dramatically improve the user experience over what uh, you would have available to you today. Being the UAL or integrating Anchor and all the other wallets directly. Those are, it's always so hard to answer people in like Telegram when they're like, hey, I want to build this cool new app. How do I do X? And the answer is, uh, there's a lot of work. You're, you're going to have to dig in and, you know, add the four wheels to your car before it actually moves down the road. Another thing for uh, for Aaron, I think you took a different approach with uh, how you would build Wharf is instead of building all the code to build Wharf, you built how you would use Wharf before building the code. Is that is that sort of maybe you can kind of pass through our the, the logic or the mindset of how you end up even building it without actually building it, but how it would work as a developer. Yeah. That's part of I think. It's going to be an initiative probably in the next coming weeks, if not maybe early next year. Um, but we're building, we're, we're hitting this problem from both sides. Um, we've kind of like I talked about earlier with EOS IO Core, we've been building kind of the foundation for years. We kind of know how we're building from the bottom up. And when we started Wharf, we also started a GitHub repository we're calling Golf, quote unquote, like the game of golf. Um, on GitHub, where it is a place where we're building from the top down. We're writing pseudocode. We're trying to get other people involved in writing pseudocode about like, how would you actually want to use uh, EOS, for example, in your application? Like, let's, let's make up some code. It doesn't have to function, but let's figure out what the most simple approach to solving that problem would be. And then we can work from the top down at the same time, we're working from the bottom up and meet somewhere in the middle to come up with that like sweet spot of what the developer experience will be while using Wharf. So we still need to write some blog posts and like explain that. Uh, we'll give a better explanation of like why we're calling it golf right now. Uh, the, the, the TLDR on that is is that we're trying to golf is a game where you want to use the least amount of swings possible to get to the hole. Uh, this is where we want to use the least amount of code to solve a problem. Yeah, it's a great approach. Uh, definitely writing the pseudocode first, or at least you know, in, in conjunction with the with the core bottom level code, uh, will definitely help the user experience because then you're really looking at how would a developer write this, and then you have to make that happen, whether it's close or sort of close. But I think it's definitely the right approach and. And playing golf, that's how I learned um, regex. Regular expression yeah. is uh, regex golf. So if anybody wants to play golf, regex golf is a good one too. Yeah, great. Yep. And if you go looking up code golf, you're going to find something a little bit different. There is a whole league of code golf out there, which their goal is to make it use as few characters as possible. Yeah. Uh, and that is a whole different thing where you end up with just completely unreadable code and it gets into like compilation of code and minification and just some other nerdy topics. But we're, we're really kind of doing a UX or a developer experience code golf in this sense.
But yeah, expect some updates on that, you know, in the coming month or so, I would say. And if you want to find it now, you can go look at the GitHub on the GrayMass organization. There's a repository called Golf. And in the pull requests and in the issues is where that's kind of happening. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Aaron. And thanks, uh, Denis, Eve, Joe Louis, everyone else who jumped in there for some questions and some more color commentary. That's, it's been great. Anyone else have uh, some questions on this topic before uh, we move on? I'm going to give you guys just a few more moments. I will, to kind of add one thing, I think the universe is trying to tell us something here. I've had probably like four or five people this week reach out about automatic signing transaction. Um, you know, like you are playing a game and whenever you move your character, you need to perform a transaction that says, move me to this position or whatever. It's kind of annoying to have to sign and like pop over to Anchor or whatever wallet you're using to approve a transaction for every time that happens. Uh, Worf is is a building block towards reaching uh, a system that will make that much better for those kinds of games. Um, it's, that was another proposal in the Wallet Plus Blue paper called Request for Permission that we're super excited about. Um, and what, how that plays with Wharf is, is that we're actually going to build, be able to build like a miniature wallet into Wharf that could have a private key with very limited permissions, so that way it's not dangerous. Um, so that way when you're playing a game and you click, I want to move, it happens in your browser without you having to interact with your wallet. It is very similar to the automatic signing that I think people are used to um, using other wallets, but you actually still have to have the wallet open in those existing uh, automatic signing type scenarios. With Wharf and the direction this will go, this is kind of outside of the scope of the initial development, but with a plugin for Wharf that helps with this, you won't even need your wallet open. You could authorize the browser, for example, to be able to play the game. So that way you can do those actions and perform those things without Anchor being open, without approving any transactions like that. And then if you ever wanted to log out, you could obviously log out on the website, but you could then also go into your wallet and deauthorize that other, you know, that browser, for example, um, so that it was no longer able to perform those transactions. So that's a very, very forward-looking um, example of something else we're going to be able to do. But another way that this is going to be able to create a really good user experience, you know, if you're using a social media app or you're playing a game or you're doing something that doesn't have much financial impact or wouldn't impact your uh, like the value of your account should something go wrong in your browser, um, those are use cases that we're going to be able to meet with plugins for Wharf, and we're super excited about that. All right, awesome. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, okay, no we're going to go from one heavy, head, one heavy hitter in the EOS community to another. 
Um, is Nathan James available to talk to us about some new ENF Twitter spaces that have been going on? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I am actually going to be the one talking about this. Let's see. We have a, a new developer advocate. His name is Janayad, and he's actually here. Like, well, I, he's possibly here. Let's see. Here, I'm here. You need to turn your mic up a little bit, though. All right. Hold on. I I am really here with my mic turned up now. Fantastic. Sounds good. Welcome to the fireside. No, glad to be on. So yeah, what um, Nathan and I have been doing some Twitter Spaces. And the goal is to just really have a more inclusive community um, and have like regular Twitter spaces that aren't just, hey, crypto's going up or NFTs are going up, where we can have actual discussion around community, around development, getting new people into the space, getting experts to share their experiences. And we've had decent turnout. We've done two so far. Uh, we're doing it every Tuesday at 4 p.m. EST, and we're going to settle on another time to be more inclusive to other time zones. Awesome. What were the topics uh, so far in the, on these first two Twitter spaces? So the first, the one yesterday was actually on uh, breaking into blockchain. Uh, so what different careers, because people often think that the only jobs in blockchain have to do with development. But we went into just the different jobs that people had, because even within the ENF, we have people who are project managers, people who are technical writers, people in marketing and all that. So and people shared their journeys that were the beauty of crypto and blockchain is that a lot of the journeys are very, very non-traditional. So it's interesting and it really gives hope to people who have non-traditional backgrounds. I think someone came yesterday who was dyslexic, you know, had to drop out of school and all that. But he had a home in the crypto community, so that was really nice. And let let me actually have to look back at what the first what was the first topic, Nathan? It was the uh, FTX wave. Yeah, so we did one on the future, like what happens after FTX, and you know that one we really kept in neutral, but we kept on. You know, we said, hey, crypto always has these big events, and this is just a part of a growing space. And then other spaces have had events like this and they're still fine right like you've had scandals in finance you've had scandals in other industries but it's not like they go down obviously it's some negative press but it does cause more people to come out and it causes people to look deeper into things and the so dcafe is part of a larger initiative we're actually going to be expanding this into other media types uh, so this is something that's going to be also podcasts eventually it's going to be videos very soon uh, it's going to be interviews with a bunch of people inside the community, outside the community, inside of Web3, and then also outside of Web3. Uh, we have been getting to know a lot of Web2 developers on Twitter. It's part of a larger group that um, we're part of. And we're trying to bridge the gap between those two. So not only bring in uh, other Web3 developers from other ecosystems, but also people who can make their first home EOS, which I think is a very powerful thing for somebody because your first home inside of anything, whether it's a, a framework for development or whether it's just a network, becomes very emotionally attaching. Um, so we really want to bring this larger. Uh, there's also going to be a content creators uh course which kind of leads into getting people into these spaces and into these initiatives if you look here on discord we've actually created a new category called creators uh and this will make sense uh hopefully very very soon uh for the rest of you and 
it's going to provide a home for people to really start working together as a group to evangelize the network, raise themselves up within the network and within the larger Web3 uh, ecosystems. Awesome. Yeah, I love that um, that recent topic about, you know, different careers within blockchain and, and the path that people took to get there. So I'm I'm curious if you guys in the chat want to drop your path in here. I'd love to uh, learn more about how, you know, each of you kind of got to crypto and what jobs you guys were doing before. Or if you want to jump on and share, you know, a little little recap of your journey, we'd love to hear it. Um Myself, uh, I was working for the federal government in Canada. After that, played poker for a little bit and then uh, got into crypto. So definitely non-traditional path. And again, I'm not a developer, you know, uh, and I was still able to find my place in crypto. So there's definitely lots of room for non-developers in crypto. And that's, that's what makes it so great. And also the variety of skills and, you know, past experiences that people can bring to the space. Very exciting to me. Yeah, can I share my path? For sure. Yeah, so the funny thing is, um, I did a lot of job applications. I did a lot of networking, a lot of Twitter spaces, and I got my job off a tweet. And Nathan was the one who hired me. So uh, I, I was building, I was really active on Twitter. I was spending like 20, 30 plus hours a week just commenting in Twitter spaces, networking, and just doing my best to just add value and grow in the account. And then, you know, when you're on Twitter and you're on Twitter spaces, you always intersect with uh, people in blockchain. So I was in a lot of spaces and my background is in, I, I'm a professional resume writer and I made the top 200 creators on LinkedIn. So I was in Twitter space in on Twitter spaces. I was the LinkedIn and resume guy. So I always got invited to spaces and then I was looking for a job and I made a tweet saying, Twitter, I need your help. A lot of people retweeted that and Nathan saw it and we had a conversation and uh, now I'm here. Hold up. So your job was how to make a resume and you got your job without making a resume. Did I understand that right? Yes. <laughs> funny enough. You know, it's funny. It's, um, yeah, you know, I've worked with over 400 people on their resumes. I've gotten interviews through my resume. Hold on, hold on. You are you are so underselling yourself. This is a person who has hours and hours and hours of interviews with people, right? Um, somebody who's built an audience from zero to, what was it, like 40,000 on yeah, LinkedIn? Yeah, it's like 38,000. Right. It's it's not just as small as you're making it seem. Don't, don't undersell yourself. Nathan. I agree with Nathan. Okay, I, I'll so I'll tell you. So I found something called NoDegree.com, where I, I help people with college degrees find jobs. And because of that, I host something called the No Degree Podcast, where I interview people without college degrees and have them share their stories. And if anybody wants to share their stories and they don't have a college degree, would love to share that. So that's one of the reasons I spent a lot of time growing on LinkedIn, and because that's where a lot of people in the career space are. But one of the issues with LinkedIn is I've gotten over 30 million views on my content and I've grown to like 38,000 followers, but I've never gotten press off of LinkedIn. So a year ago, I started being active on Twitter because that's where the journalists hang out. And then that's what started. The, I replicated my efforts on LinkedIn to Twitter and I'm really big on community building. So, yeah. So that's the shortcut, the short story. Hey, sign me up for the no, no degree uh, career stories. I'd, I'd be down to join your podcast. Yeah, same here. 
I think that's what's really lovely about this. We see, I mean, I don't have a degree, right? I've been a developer for an extremely long time, but I don't have a degree. And I think there's a lot of people inside of the crypto space and inside of blockchain in general who really embrace that kind of open source contribution behavior. And it's not only lovely to see, but I think that it creates a lot of camaraderie between people when they say, hey, it doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter where you come from. It only matters what you're doing right now here for the ecosystem that cares about you and will will evangelize the hell out of you every moment of your journey. Andrew shared in the tech chat in our chat here that he's not a developer and he got his crypto job thanks to an EOS fireside chat. That's great. Andrew works uh, with us at EOS Nation. Uh, doing lots of great stuff. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I can for sharing. I can share a little bit of that story if you like. Yes, for sure. Yeah, so uh, I actually I'd, I've been been in EOS since uh, since launch, and so I was always pretty active on the EOS subreddit, um, and I was uh, sort of like in, uh, helping helping people. Actually, uh, the specific thing is uh, with the registration and then post registration. Uh, EOS Authority had their their whole um, kind of guide to help with that. And so I was sort of helping people around. And then some random person contacted me on Reddit and asked if I could do crypto writing for them. And so I did that for a little while, but uh, it wasn't, wasn't paying enough. So I was uh, still doing my other job as a welder. Um, and then as, uh, as Stefan, you just mentioned, I w- uh, went to one of the EOS fireside chats and EOS Nation said that they were looking for crypto writers. I was like, what do you know? I have done that before. So I just uh, I sort of shot in the dark, just uh, uh, tried it out. The nice thing about uh, trying to be a writer is that um, when you do submit uh, your resume, you want to have a cover letter, which I was able to use to, um, uh, to sort of demonstrate that I could write. And then, yeah, as... Uh, I guess uh, EOS Station was um, nice enough to kind of uh, give me a chance. And yeah, I guess uh, the rest is history, I suppose, but very recent history. <laughs> uh, and again, yeah. selling another person selling the social, you've moved beyond writing at this point. I don't know if you want to share true. any I'm, of that. I'm sort of, I, I'm doing a product ownership stuff now, which is part of the uh, agile scrum kind of way of uh, product development. Um, and it's still, uh, I, I, I really appreciate the uh, opportunity to kind of expand my horizons. Again, not something that I've uh, done that much in the past, but um, there is a need. So um, I think that is, uh, as as people were talked about before, one of the, uh, one of the key um, interesting parts of uh, the blockchain space is that there's a lot of people who might not, I, I mean, it's such a new space anyway, like nobody has degrees in blockchain engineering or very few, probably there, there are not very many degrees out there for blockchain engineering. So it's sort of, um, it's it's all about how well you can learn and, and how well you can execute and that kind of thing. And um, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that I will be able to uh, prove that out with uh, my new role. But at, at the very least, I can still write words. So that's fun. <laughs> Is it still too early to drop a bit of alpha on the product that you're currently working on? 
I could I could mention it. We're working on uh, something that uh, that we're calling Spyglass right now, which is essentially a way to um, uh, look at uh, transaction failures, a, a, a way to help people diagnose problems uh, with either their transactions or their users' transactions, or if there are node operator problems with their nodes, those sorts of things, um, with the eventual kind of goal of um, uh, sort of providing all of that information to core developers so that they can uh, help impl implement a long-term fix for these issues. Um, and we're, uh, it's, I'm, I'm learning a lot about the software development process, and I, I find that um, super interesting for me because I've always sort of been sitting in the outside and... Uh, so it's uh, it's cool seeing it uh, in sort of take form. Um, that said, because I I don't feel that confident giving a, a release date or anything like that because um, you know I would probably be forced to eat my words and you know I don't know I don't know how well those keep after a few months. Can um, can we get a confirmation that we'll learn more maybe in Q one of next year? Yes, yes, I think that that our our timeline is at the very least um, sort of going towards that direction. We're hoping to um, have something to release or at least share by the new year. All right, awesome, and yeah, uh, you've been doing great work. Uh, I'm, I'm working a bit with you as well uh, on some things, and yeah, it's been a pleasure. So love love hiring people from the EOS community. Of course, that's what we try to do as much as possible. Proud to be here. Thanks. And I remember that that fireside chat. That was the eight hour one. And Andrew stayed from eight hours. Hired. It was, Harry, you're you're hired. That was uh, actually that was like that was the one day that my boss at my welding job was not there, so I was able to listen for all seven hours and ask questions and stuff like that. So it was crazy. Sort of serendipity. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you're the last man oh, standing. That's great. Was, uh, I didn't Dick. know that. Patrick was there as well. And I was there a little bit. I was walking on the street. And it was like eight o'clock at night. We're like, wow, we're still talking. Wow. What? Wow. So, yeah, that was the uh, longest fireside chat that Andrew was on it for the whole time. Very impressive. It does help being on the West Coast. It was only like 4 p.m. <laughs> by the time it was done. It was work hours. Yeah, would love to hear some more uh, career paths that led people to this chat. Maybe I'm going to call out Winnie, which we we've heard a bit from in the last few weeks. Do you like to share a bit more about your your career path? Oh yeah, totally. So I well, I went to school. Um, I I got the degrees. I didn't want to get them, but my parents were not going to let me have it any other way. So I went to school for accounting and then for economics. But I actually got pissed off when I was studying economic policies and whatnot, right? So then around 2014, my ex-boyfriend, praise be to God that I met him, um, he introduced me to Bitcoin. We broke up soon after that. But then, then I was really interested in the economics and just like, well, the tokenomics behind Bitcoin. So I got into Bitcoin like that. But before that, I was working for marketing firms here in Ottawa, doing marketing for a lot of the engineering and architectural firms here. So I got into Bitcoin. I started trading Bitcoin while still working in marketing. And then um, 
Ethereum popped up and all these layer twos were being built on Ethereum and these communities got hired off of Telegram. <laughs> so that was my entry point into crypto was just participating as a community member. And then one of like the people in leadership liked my contributions and they offered me a position. And then I became a community manager. And then before I knew it, I was like, chief marketing officer and then I've gone into different roles I've worked in communications I've worked in business development um at the EOS network foundation I'm working in marketing so yeah I kind of started with like I went to school I hated school I took long to finish school because of how much I hated school and just like studying all the economic policies and just how the government prints money it pissed me off um, so yeah, I've worked in blockchain since 2016 and I've never looked back and I hope to never look back because, yeah, I love this space. Yeah, I went to uh, University in Ottawa as well and I hated it too. Awesome. Oh, cool. Where did you go? Maybe we're friends or we might be rivals. <laughs> I, I, I grew up in, uh, in Ottawa. I went to Ottawa U. Okay, cool. I went to... I went to Ottawa U2 for accounting, and then I did Carleton for economics. So right, we're still yeah. friends. You, you <laughs> both went to Ottawa U and hated school? Maybe it's just yeah. Ottawa U. No, no, no. It's just school. <laughs> yeah. I was studying business administration, but kind of got disillusioned with the whole growth at all costs mentality and the, the types of peers I was hanging around. I was like, I don't want to compete on this yeah. in these types of situations with these types of people it's just not my thing yeah. so then i fucked off and played poker for a bit snowboarded that was great and then uh yeah found crypto and then just went all in on crypto it's been great well thanks for sharing winnie that was uh that was awesome to hear from you and learn more all right. Um, anyone else? Anyone else want to want to jump in here, share some personal stories, ask some questions, anything like that? Give you guys a few moments, and then we'll move on to some more topics, maybe. So I got my start in the crypto community by hosting crypto meetups. So my, my journey goes back. My background is in journalism. I went to went to school for journalism, worked in that industry very briefly before I also got disillusioned by the state of that industry and how it was not what I what I had signed up for. Um, left, just needed to make some money, got a job as a customer service agent in a call center, worked my way up. That was this was at a bank. Um, worked my way up. Did some sales, started doing operations, got into the product side of things, was working in their digital messaging team, discovered Bitcoin. I was, you know, always a, you know, like Winnie, upset at the printing of money going on and things like that. Um, and, you know, came across Bitcoin. Um, someone on a Facebook friend of mine who I had met backpacking years prior was posting about Bitcoin on Facebook and caught my attention. He was also a, a very early BitShares, Steemit, and and then EOS fan. And uh and he sold me on on EOS following him and that's when I discovered Steemit and started playing with it myself and 
um, was like, wow, this is actually a, a usable blockchain that, that regular people can can get some value out of. Um, and, and, you know, EOS was coming and I was excited about it and I wanted to talk to others about it. And there were, I was looking for meetups in, in Toronto where I'm from. There were none. So I started hosting some myself and that's how I met the kind of, I guess, got the attention of, of the others on the EOS Nation team who, uh, they, they invited me to a Zoom call, asked me to join them on this adventure. And now here I am. And yeah, not a developer. I have a question. Has anybody in blockchain got their has anybody got their jobs in a normal way? Define normal. Probably not. <laughs> I don't know. Every story is like this road and it's very interesting, but has anyone just like applied and got a job? Yeah, I mean my my path was pretty normal, but why do you want to hear about that? It's so boring. I was, no fun. I was walking past the gray mass brick and mortar and they had a sign in the window. And so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I promise not really. I know that I do my path normal, but I'm happy to share it. Yeah, go for it. So this is Zach. And um, I, I started in crypto in. 2013 with Bitcoin, um, participating in what we'll call libertarian markets. And um, that kind of went on for a couple of years. And then I, I genuinely saw the value in the technology beyond that, um, you know, for humanity as a whole. And uh, but I really just kept trading for a couple of years. And I met my best friend and, you know, we were trading together and it wasn't really until maybe 2015 or 2016 that I started to get into the actual technology of it. So I was going to school for computer engineering with a minor in physics and computer science. And um, to the comment about degrees, I actually did complete my degree program, but I ran out, ran out of money the last year and I couldn't afford to finish. So my school, for whatever reason, they let you pay a semester late. So I just like didn't pay them for their last semester and I still owe them money. So I earned the degree, but I have to pay them like $20,000 to get it. And they're not charging interest. So I'm just going to pay the student loans first. It's kind of where I am. If I ever needed it, I'd pay it off. And then hopefully they'd still give me the degree. But I don't know. It's just a weird situation to be in. Like, yay, America, I guess. But anyway, so I was at school studying computer engineering, computer science. And like I finally got interested in this tech in 2016. And I was working in the automotive field. We were required to have a job in our degree field. So I was doing software. So I started just writing papers about it at school and I started like trading and sort of using my um, technology background to gain an edge trading altcoins and stuff, you know, looking at the white papers and trying to see who's full of BS and who's not to the best of my ability. Um, I did very well on Tron. So that tells you that <laughs> that's not always how that how that went. Sometimes I did well on coins that didn't really have the best uh, tech. But anyways, they. Um, so I started, you know, reading books and just listening to audiobooks on crypto. I listened to two that stick out to me are like um, The Writings of Satoshi. I listened to that audiobook on the way back and forth to work. And uh, another one was Mastering Blockchain by Imran Bashir. It's an older book. It came out before EOS was even a thing, but it explains crypto fundamentals like very, very well. And um, 
I convinced some poor professor to let me do an independent study. So they had to read all my papers on blockchain. Um, and I even convinced my um, employer to let me do a pilot project. So we had um, we had these hardware license dongles in our department. So you had to have this. It basically looks like a flash drive. You had to have this physical thing plugged into your computer to use our engineering software. And some of them were worth over $150,000. I mean, the value of some of these physical, like little flash drive looking things was insane. And they were completely untracked. You could just kind of disappear with one if you wanted to. And um, so I convinced them to let me use a blockchain to track that. Someone else had already written like a conventional application or started writing a conventional application to track these things. So they had a GUI, but that's all they had. So I took their GUI and I put a blockchain behind it. I wrote it in C Sharp and um, used back then Windows provided a peer to peer messaging service and a way to use the Active Directory account to sign things. So in an enterprise environment, you can trust Microsoft, which I wouldn't do, but they could. So I used Active Directory to sign the transactions, and um, it even had some degree of partition tolerance because we had test trips. So anyways, I wrote this blockchain. Uh, it was supposed to be like a side project, but it was basically all I did uh, for a semester or two at work and um, presented it to the executives and then kind of dipped out. So I don't know. I just like wrote papers and read books and did this little project and um, I did some projects at school as well. Um, I wrote a, a Bitcoin miner in Verilog, except our, our FPGAs were total garbage, so they couldn't actually mine any Bitcoin. All I could do was SHA-256. So, I mean, you know, my point is I just like did, did things to try and like gain experience in the field. And then when I graduated, I just went online and looked for jobs and I filtered out all the big cities because I was sick of being in traffic for an hour and a half a day. And I found two and applied to one and got a job. So I guess that's quote unquote normal. But um, that's how I got into the field. I definitely recommend those books for anyone who's interested. Um, the Writings of Satoshi, very interesting. And Mastering Blockchain by Imran Bashir. Not sure you mentioned it, but where are you working now? Right now I'm at um, the EOS Network Foundation. So I guess that's the part of the story I left out. So I wanted to work on an actual, like I wanted to work on the blockchain team um, writing EOS itself, but I didn't really have that much experience with C++. And I just wanted to get my foot in the door. So I looked at all the positions they had opened and uh, this was in 2019. So I applied to block one and um, they had a, a, an opening on the automation team. So they accepted me as a junior engineer and like, that's not what I wanted to do. The plan was to leave that team as soon as possible and um, move to the blockchain team. But I don't know, that just ended up being what I did want to do. And I worked under very, very, very smart people who took me under their wing and, and taught me things. And I'm super grateful to them, uh, Zane and Justin and everyone else on that team. Those names are probably meaningless, but just to shout them out. And um, that's still what I do. I still do automation and cloud infrastructure and stuff, which is super needed. So um, it's just, I just think it's kind of funny that I wanted to do like actual core blockchain development, but I ended up doing this other thing that I just didn't expect. So that's another thing for anyone who wants to get into the field. Like 
just get your foot in the door and you might be surprised where you end up. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that story. That's great. Um, Eric P., you jumped on the mic here for just a second. Uh, would love to hear your story as well, even if it's conventional. Ah, sure. Yeah, man. I, uh, I got a computer science degree and I went to work. I started working at Web2 step places. So like uh, this is around 2000. So uh, CNET Networks and worked at an internet startup for amateur athletes. And then eventually I ended up at Microsoft where I was doing commerce and media. So I was running all the engineering teams for MSN, their big content portal. And then I moved over to do consumer content, so, uh, consumer commerce, so all the stuff you buy and sell. And so, yeah, I mean, I was interested in always want to be more hands on, uh, like a smaller community, like to be more connected to people. I just felt that the jobs I had at bigger companies were so transactional and I didn't really feel like I was adding value for all the work that I was putting in. So uh, that's when I started looking around for opportunities and using my network and, you know, asking, you know, where I could help out. And that's how I ended up at the ENF Foundation. And now I do help out with, you know, any tech they need on the corporate side. I help out with SDKs, uh, worked on the Ledger hardware wallet, helping do some upgrades there. So that's, I would say, a pretty traditional path for a computer science person. Yeah, no, you can ask great. me anything. So welcome any questions you guys have. That's great. Happy to have you on the fireside. I can explain my my pre. And it, it involves Steph, but I'll I'll do a little bit before Steph uh, got me involved. So, um, so again, my whole I, I'm on my whole life pretty much doing been doing open source development. Uh, I don't know why. I I just like to push things out and work on the next thing. And also got involved a lot with open data as well. So a lot of the open data kind of really fascinated me as a, as a weekend projects or kind of night projects. So I'd work full time and I would do open source software at night and open data on the weekends, essentially just working seven days out a week all the time. Um, but my, my big career was with the military. So I worked for the military for about 11, 11 years as a geospatial engineer, deployed overseas twice. Went to Afghanistan, went to Nepal. Um, anyways, that's the military career part. I left that. I actually joined. Um, I had an offer from Facebook. So Facebook wanted to hire me to work at their mapping department. So they do have a maps. They're kind of competing against Google Maps. They're doing a machine learning, big data, open data stuff. So I was kind of a good candidate. Where it got uh, unconventional was I went to travel back to Canada on a vacation went back to Facebook in the US and then I got stopped at the border and then my visa that Facebook had applied was the wrong visa for the application that I was doing. So they denied my visa and I was essentially immediately jobless. I had no visa to work in the US. I had previously quit my previous job and now I had no job, but I wanted to code all day, every day. So then I called Steph. I was like, hey, what is this Bitcoin thing? And then I got into like so I was algorithms. so me, me and Denis knew each other from high school. We used to break dance together, and then we kind of stopped talking to each other for many many years. I don't know, maybe ten years or whatever. In 2017, yeah. I was just blasting my Facebook feed every day with Bitcoin stuff, and I didn't know that Denis was seeing these messages. So 
I was very excited when a smart developer friend of mine reached out and, and was like, hey, Steph, what's this Bitcoin stuff all about? I've got time now. I want to learn. That was very exciting for me. Yeah. And then just essentially did that full time. Ever since I had essentially, you know, my my visa been revoked, I was like, all right, I'm just going, you know, solo and, and going to figure out some sort of thing in this crypto industry. And that was really like essentially the beginning of our journey with US Nation, or at least on my side. And every founder of US Nation had different starts, but uh, that was mine. Uh, visa revoked. And uh, yes, yeah, you know, so then full, mid December, Denny comes over, we talk Bitcoin for a day. Early January, Denny's like, hey, I'm doing a deep dive on a lot of cryptos. A few days later, he's like, this EOS network looks really, really promising. I think I'm going to go all in on that. And then a few days after that, he's like, hey, Steph, we should become a block producer on this network. I was like, what? That's way too crazy. There's going to be huge companies. There's no way just we can become a block producer. I didn't really believe. Eve, Eve was also in our chats. Eve instantly believed. He was like, oh, that sounds like a great challenge that I want to get involved with. And then we reached out to, to Daniel, who was basically the creator of the largest meetup group in Toronto. We reached out to Dave, who was the owner of the uh, one of the large Facebook groups called EOS Nation. Uh, Vincent, our CFO, was in there as well. And we kind of all got together and were like, hey, let's, let's make this happen. And uh, yeah, it's been a hell of an adventure since. And uh, yeah, looking forward to see where it goes in the next five years. So a lot of def definitely unconventional uh, startups for sure. Journey, career journeys, for sure. All right, we're going to move on to some other topics, but if you guys, uh, you know, want to jump in at any time, feel free to do that. Uh, yes, Eve uh, did go to high school with me. Um, answering Trinbot here. All right, next topic I wanted to talk about was Zach Gall at Decentral Miami. So unfortunately, I looked for some video footage. I couldn't find it yet, so I don't think it's been published yet. Uh, I'm going to share the tweet from the EOS Network Foundation announcing Zach talking on a panel. I can't wait to see Zach talking on that panel. Zach has such, you know, he's such an expert on EOS, the whole history, everything that's going on right now. He's so passionate, loves talking about that stuff. So I'm sure he did a great job uh, on that panel. Um, so I'm looking really forward to uh, seeing that. I'm going to share the Decentral conference Twitter account as well. If you guys want to click around, there's some great pictures there kind of showing what, what, what the conference looks like. Um, I don't know. Was anyone, is anyone here in Miami right now or were they in Miami to be able to attend this panel? I feel like it's doubtful, but I throwing it out there anyways. All right. No one's in Miami. All right, cool. Um, I'm sure we'll uh, I'm sure we'll get that content available to us soon enough. All right, uh, next update is uh, Pomelo updates. So, of course, season four is in full swing. 
donations are open, grant applications are open. You can still get in there if you've got a grant that you want to include. A grant, of course, has to be a public good built on the Antelope blockchain networks. Um, and we're hosting pitch sessions every week in English, in Chinese, in Korean. Jen Rios is hosting some on their YouTube channel. And uh, yeah, we encourage you guys to sign up. If your grant has been approved, then you can sign up for the pitch session. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, so get in there, apply. There's still seats available for tomorrow's session. We've got a bunch of projects already signed up, but there's still room. We're maxing out at 15. Everyone has five minutes to pitch their grant tomorrow on the Pomelo Grants Twitter account, Twitter Spaces. And uh, yeah, so I encourage you guys to get in there. If you did apply in the last few days for this pitch session, check your emails. I've sent out confirmation emails. You guys need to reply, give me some information, helps us make sure that the show runs smoothly and we have all the info that we need. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about Pomelo is the new collections feature. So I'm pretty sure I mentioned this on previous Firesides, uh, but collections are a new feature this season on Pomelo. Basically pretty obvious. It, it is what it sounds like. You can add a bunch of different grants into your personal collection and other users can browse those collections to see which grants are recommended by various community members, you know, in the community. Um, and then you can easily add all of those grants to your cart and then donate to them. Uh, so, you know, Daniel was talking a bit earlier about building nice user experiences on EOS. I created my first collection this week. It's called Pitch Season 4, and it's going to include all of the grants that pitch on all of the pitch sessions. And so, and, and I was just very impressed and pleased at how smooth and easy the process was to create my collection, to add grants in there. Uh, so I'm going to share the collection right now. And this collection will grow over time. So as other people, um, you know, pitch like tomorrow on the rapid fire on the Twitter spaces and then in Korea and China, I'll be adding all of those grants to this collection over time. So by the end of the season, we'll have a nice collection with all of the grants that took the time, you know, to prepare their pitch, to show up on these shows and to talk to the community directly. So I'm personally going to be donating to all of these grants that take the time to, to come on these pitch sessions. And actually this season, my personal donation strategy is going to rely heavily on collections. So I'm probably going to go browse all the collections and then one by one kind of donate to all grants to all of, in all of the collections that I think, uh, you know, I want to donate to. So that's kind of my plan uh, for the season. Uh, and then, yeah, just some stats for season four so far on Pomelo. Uh, we've approved 113 grants so far. That's great. There's been eight, more than 18,000 EOS donated. So that's, uh, among 1600 contributions, a bit more than that, um, split across 280 contributors. And, uh, as we know from previous seasons, you know, there's always a rush at first and then also a rush at the end. So like personally, I'm going to be donating more closer to the end of the season, I'm sure. And I know a lot of other people do that. So if, you, if you're thinking of putting up a collection, if there's grants that you know you want to help promote, make that collection uh, and then I'll probably 
uh, probably throw some EOS, um, you know, to the grants in those collections. And then final thing I want to announce, not necessarily a Pomelo thing, uh, is the EOS Community Poker Tournament. So we had the first edition of this poker tournament a while back. It was great fun. We had about 40 people show up uh, and our team is putting up some prizes. So we're putting up some EOS. Now you can't keep that EOS. That EOS is actually can only be donated to Pomelo Grants. So we're gonna you know, donate some EOS to some of the grants um, that the winners of this poker tournament choose. We're also, of course, giving away a bunch of great NFTs, some Pomelo astronauts, some party crackers, some pop tokens, all of the good stuff. Uh, so we hope you guys can join us. So that's Sunday, December 18th at 11 a.m. Eastern. So last time it was 2 p.m. Eastern, and we're trying to alternate the start times on these to better serve, you know, as a large part of the community as possible. So get your poker skills ready and, you know, hope to see a lot of you guys uh, out there for the EOS Community Poker Tournament on Sunday, December 18th. Um, did Daniel want to come on and uh, share some other things about Pomelo? Hey, hey, yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, you did an awesome job covering it all. The stats, all that stuff, collections. I'm really excited to see, just like you like you mentioned, that uh, your strategy of donations has evolved with the introduction of collections. I noticed the same myself. Uh, I'm really interested to see how the game tr sort of changes over time with these this new element. Uh, and one of the goals with collections is to make it pretty open in terms of how what what these collections can be used for uh i'm really still looking forward to i still haven't seen a grant created and I, i'm hoping that, that we get one soon you know who's going to create a grant for let me be the the all, ultimate curator of Pomelo grants i'm going to you know interview the grant owners and verify that they're doing what they're saying they're doing and that they are what they say they are and i'm going to create a collection of my verified grants um, that sounds like a great public good to me. And I think it would be awesome to see multiple people doing that. Uh, because the, the goal of Pomelo has always been to sort of give the power to the community to be able to decide what grants are deserving of receiving the matching pool. Uh, as a Pomelo team, we're trying to stay as neutral as possible. We, you know, we review every grant and give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Does it meet the criteria of a public good? After that point, you know, we're, we create the rules and we monitor that people are following the rules, but we're not judging grants on their quality. That's up to the community to decide. Um, so we're, you know, over time, we want to keep adding more and more tools to, to put in the hands of the community to be able to surface that signal of the crowd more and uh, reduce the barrier for donors um, to, you know, not have to do all that research by themselves uh, in season Three, we had I think 170 or so grants approved. Um, so you know, putting yourself in the shoes of a donor who wants to, you know, really don't you know have an influence on how this matching pool is distributed. Reading through 170 grants, following up with all of the grant owners, all that that's that's too much work for for anyone. So with collections now, we can sort of you can think of it like a proxy almost proxy your donations to somebody in the community that you trust. And again, our job as the Pomelo team is to help make that easy, help those trusted community members prove their reputation over time. So, you know, we've been doing things like, 
you know, displaying the stats of the collector at the top of those collections and their participation in Pamela over time. And, and I see Glue Dog here in the chat sharing his, uh, his achievements and his rank, his current donor ranking right now. I don't think I've seen anybody in the community with as many achievements as Glue Dog has. Uh, so, and right currently in the number one ranking position of donors. Um, so, you know, if you look at Glue Dog's collection, you'll see his shiny badges up there and all of the contributions he's made over time. And, and uh, maybe that's something that, you know, maybe you've seen Glue Dog around and you trust his judgment. And rather than you digging through all the grants yourself, you can just donate to his collection. Um, and through the, you know, I mentioned I'm using the collections myself, playing with them, experiencing, looking, finding opportunities to improve them. Um, we've, we've already, and shout out to Yaro. He's our full stack dev on, on the Pomelo team. Very receptive to, to feedback as, as uh, you know, I, I noticed something that's a bit painful in the UX. I, I open a, an issue for him in GitHub and within a day it's implemented. Uh, so one of the things we implemented since launching season four and collections is ability within a collection to filter by things like filter out the grants I've already donated to. Because one of the things I found myself doing is adding all the collections, all the grants in a collection to my cart, checking out, coming back a few days later, there's new collections, there's more grants added to the collections. Now I can filter out the ones I already donated to and add the rest to my cart and, and uh, keep, keep loading up on my donations that way. Uh, so, yeah, uh, really loving this to see all the, all the activity. I'm really happy to see how many collections have been created. There's some really good quality ones here. And I think it's just going to get better and better every season. Speaking of the infamous Glue Dog, uh, Glue Dog, are you going to join us on the pitch sessions? And for those of you who have more than one grant, you know, you can apply for one slot per grant. So if you've got two grants, you know, feel free to send two applications for the pitch session. We'll give you that five minute slot for each of your grants. John, did you want to jump in here? I know Boyd has a, a, a grant on Pomelo. Um, hoping you guys apply for the pitch session as well. Yeah, we might. Uh, we just have to have someone on the team that's got got a, some time to set aside for that. For sure, for sure. So there's still uh, there's a pitch session tomorrow. There's another one on the, the Thursday, 8th of December. And then the final one is going to be on December 13th. That's a Tuesday because the final day for donations is December 14th. And that's a Wednesday. Um, so, of course, we'll be reminding you guys of that every fireside until we get there. And Glue Dog, don't worry about, uh, you know, letting others have your slot the way we designed it. This year we have 60 slots. Uh, I don't think we're going to fill them out completely so there's definitely plenty of room for anyone that has an approved grant that wants to get up there in front of the community and share uh share what they're all about
Oh, I forgot to unmute myself again. Classic. It's got to happen at least once a show, right? Um, so yeah, so next topic, we're going to go move on to Antelope Coalition request for proposal, talking about RAM limitation fixes. So this topic is definitely too technical for me to talk about. Um, so I'd like to invite Eve, if he's still around, to maybe share more information about this request for proposal. Sure. So it's it's actually really not technical. That's kind of the idea. Um, and let me explain. So um, the idea is that the coalition uh, acknowledges that currently there are RAM limitations on uh, the way the way that basically Antelope um, is built and and how it runs, and we see those limitations uh, or hitting. We see that Wax is hitting the the wall or is about to hit the wall of where those limitations lie. Uh, they're growing in in RAM consumption quite significantly, and so. Part of the idea is uh, this is somewhat of a different RFP. Think about it uh, kind of like commissioning a blue paper through an RFP process to a certain extent, whereby we don't know what potential. So we have ideas of what potentially could be done in order to uh, increase the the uh, RAM capacity, uh, either on-chain or, or ways to work around kind of the, the limitations that are set on hardware. Um, and or how chains communicate with one another or how an application could potentially be deployed to uh, essentially scale uh, the RAM components of it or, 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 or. There's tons of different things that we know are possible about going at this, but this particular RFP is not so much to say, here's what we want you to build. It's here are the, uh, here are the challenges and we are commissioning essentially research uh, similarly to Blue Papers for somebody to come back and say, here's what we propose, here are the different options, here's what we've looked at, here's what works, here's what doesn't work, here's what others have done, here's how you'd be able to leverage Antelope uh, in order to to grow and to scale um, those, basically that functionality or, or RAM in itself. Uh, and so it's really not that technical in terms of talking about the RFP itself. What will be proposed ideally will be very technical, but what will come out of the RFP will be more so options recommendations. Then a subsequent RFP would likely be commissioned to then go and implement and to develop whatever solution is then chosen by uh, the coalition to address those RAM limitations. So think of it like commissioning a blue paper, but specific to uh, RAM limitation on uh, as 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 they pertain or as they exist on antelope sounds technical to me sure so here's a challenge here's the problem people can figure out how to solve and, and propose ideas of how to solve those um th those problems essentially that that large problem essentially and for context uh i don't recall what the exact number is but uh the majority of the the block producer nodes are running on hardware and on platforms that can accommodate up to 128 gigs of RAM uh, in order to achieve the performance that they're achieving right now. So of course, there you could theoretically, or you can choose a different platform and have more RAM capacity, but then you don't have the performance that you have with, with the current setups that, that are uh, existing. And so the idea is um, if that theoretical 128 gig right now is where the technical limitation is for block producer nodes. Um, and it, 
just put in context as well. So the majority of account creation is, is or account creation is basically held in RAM. So when you create account uh, tables and such, and as you do more things with your accounts, that consumes more RAM. And uh, Wax is growing uh, of RAM consumption at a rate. I don't recall the exact number, but if, if I'm not mistaken, they're either just under 100 gigs or just above 100 gigs. Um, so I don't know if somebody... Somebody knows what the what the current number is, uh, but it was growing at a rapid rate. And so at some point, what would happen is the block producers would not be able to, uh, you, you'd hit that RAM bottleneck where you just can't create accounts anymore, or, or like there's no other RAM or no other uh, RAM to be able to store tables in essentially. And so how do we outgrow that? Uh, or how do we how do we scale that basically is the idea without necessarily having to switch to different architecture, which would then uh, allow for more RAM but drop the performance um, because we know that that performance drop there's always a lag behind uh, what is let's say a, more of a performance rig or a performance um, uh, CPUs and, and single cores to what's more traditional, let's say less performance, more multi-threading, which we really don't take advantage of, uh, but allows for more RAM capacity. Yeah, Drew, I think it might even be higher than 90 gigabytes. I think the last time I'd heard the number was like 92, 94. So it might be higher than that. So it is, it is very close. And the rate at which it was increasing, if I'm not mistaken, was more than a gig per month. Uh, and so it is a very very real concrete wall that wax is heading towards and eos would likely hit towards that wall as well once there starts to be a significant amount of uh, usage of the chain again so it's it's not theoretical for eos either it is something that ultimately we would we would also face in eos and so as a priority within the coalition it was given a lot of weight uh, in order to address prior to it becoming um it's basically being too late. Thank you. Yeah, Aaron says 104 yeah, gigs. So it's, I mean, it's, yeah. Very close. And this is where... I think we were talking about this maybe a few firesides ago, or even maybe on a panel that I attended either in Singapore, I think it was in Singapore. It's this idea that EOS in itself uh, and, and the, the underlying protocol is actually pushing the limits of what's possible as well on the hardware point of view for what we're trying to do with the chain. And that back and forth between the hardware limitations and software limitations, EOS is really pioneering, or I guess Antelope is really pioneering, so to speak. All right, well, that kind of wraps up all the topics that I had on my list. Uh, at this point, I'd like to open up, open up the floor to anyone who wants to jump in here, share some updates about your projects, ask some questions, share your career path, what led you to being here today with all of us on the fireside. Love to hear from you guys.
I guess I can share a personal update. I've got fiber internet finally moved up from 12 megabytes a second to a thousand megabytes a second. Although I don't get a thousand at my computer, I am clocking it at around 250. So that's very exciting for me. I was I was teased with this. I was told that this would be available 20 months ago when I moved here. But uh, it's finally I here. I before. Oh man. Uh, it's been it's been a, an exercise of being a stoic and a monk mode and like not letting things I can't control bother me. You know, I did really really well until last week when I got the email confirmation that it was ready, and then I had my appointment for yesterday. And then ever since then, I was just so tilted every time I would click a link and it would take a few seconds to load. But those days are behind me now. So hopefully, uh, the fiber, hopefully no more connection. Yeah. The fiber stops three houses before my house in my neighborhood. Oh, no. And they have no intention of continuing. <laughs> well, just run a mega long cable to your neighbor. I know, yeah. right? <laughs> Yeah, Quebec had this uh, this mandate of getting all houses basically connected to high-speed internet by September 2022. Uh, they were a bit late on the fiber for some places, including my place. Uh, and so they were offering actually um, subsidized Starlink connection in order to hold us over until we get that fiber. So I learned about that about a month ago. I applied, I got accepted in that for, for the Starlink, and then just a few days later, I got the email saying fiber was coming, so didn't have to get it. But uh, yeah, that's pretty cool from uh, on the part of Quebec. Catherine <laughs> cheering for fiber in the chat. I think she's also getting hooked up with fiber this week. Very exciting. Just shared a picture of me stacking boxes last night in my basement to get my 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 internet connection as close as possible to my desk, which is upstairs from this picture. I was pretty pretty excited and motivated. I was able to move up my my data speed test from like 160 up to like over 200 with this stack of boxes. Felt like a great win. Shout out to my PS4 that I see the box in there that I never have time to play, but I was very excited to buy it a few years back. Eventually, eventually I'll get around to it.
I think if you put another toilet paper roll on top, you'd probably increase your speed by another 25%. Yo, I'm definitely going to test that out tonight for sure. I was thinking about aluminum foil. Maybe you can bundle the signal a little bit. Whoa, is that actually a legit suggestion? I've no. got a really long RJ Cat 6 cable if you just want it, so you can just bring it upstairs. Yeah, but the girlfriend won't agree with the, having a mega cable <laughs> run through the whole house. Then pass it through the walls, I can help you do that. Yeah. That I, way I, you I, don't I, even see it. I'd be down for sure. Yeah, I got a 50-foot cable, um, and it works well. Wow, I'm definitely going to be trying the foil trick and updating you guys next week Next week with a picture. Those on your head. <laughs> I'll try whatever, man. We'll do a bunch of speed tests. We'll see. I, I mean, there's a legit uh, plan in the internet uh, going around for a directional antenna built with a Pringles uh, box. So, yeah. All right, I'll add it to the list. <laughs> I'll add it to the list. I just want to know under what circumstances you use that toilet paper. <laughs> that is true. Where, why is there a toilet paper there? <laughs> that's, it's not TP. You guys realize that's the router, right? Or that's my just wish. the Wi-Fi uh, extender. My, my, my best <laughs> Wi-Fi. I thought it was a joke, but at this point, it, it's, it's kind of clear that you guys actually think it's toilet paper. <laughs> well, the image is kind of fuzzy, but yeah. It is, well, you couldn't have just given this is, to us, Eve. That is the Wi-Fi extender stacked on top of boxes in order to be closer to the computer that's above it. Uh -huh. I'm incredibly sad that you told me what it actually was. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for ruining your fun, Nathan. And this, is why, this is why we all work in the team. What kind of toilet paper do you guys have that has wires coming that out of it? That has wires coming out of it, yeah. And, and what does this have to do with increasing signal strength? I'm not too sure. We do not speak of such things. <laughs> I don't know. If you're looking at that tower, anything is possible. I mean... I'm glad you guys are enjoying the tower as much as I did building it last night. Bigger... You need a bigger tower, yes. He does. Actually, Steph, if you put toilet paper under it, you'd be up by about six inches. And then you'd have the double TP stacked on top of one another. There you go. I had to concede my tower. I'm going to have to install a, a tablet, apparently. A little yeah, shelf, I mean. Girlfriend doesn't approve of this box of towers on her desk, unfortunately. On top of her printer. There you go. Joe Louis found the link to the toilet paper. The, the right model number paper. of the toilet paper. There you go. See? So when I, when I plug uh, my TV, which is close to uh, closest to the router gets 550 megabytes a second. My cell phone, when I laid on top of this toilet paper gets about 350. And yeah, my desk, my office gets about, yeah, between 160 and 250 based on the about 100 tests I did last night. Megabits, right? Because megabytes would be wild. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The good stuff.
All right, so I don't know if we want to keep talking about my box of towers or if you guys have other topics or maybe we wrap it up. We'll say running Ethernet through the house was worth it. Nah, my desk has the better view. So I'm gonna I'm gonna eat the loss of internet speed in order to keep the epic view of the forest filled with snow outside. I think we've talked about toilet paper enough for one day. Oh, some spammers trying to call me. Um, all right, we're gonna wrap it up here. Thank you everyone for joining. Still got over 50, 40 people in here, love it. Thanks for joining us for the full two hours. Thanks to all our great guests, Aaron, Nathan, Eve. We heard from Zach as well and Winnie and few others that I forget right now, but thanks everyone uh, for uh, participating in the show. Thanks for joining. Thanks for watching on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, everywhere on the internet. Uh, and yeah, it's been fun until next week. Hope you guys have a good evening, good weekend, and I'll see you again next week. Let's go EOS. Go EOS. Remember to sign up for your pop tokens. I'll be dropping them for this week and last week in just a few minutes. Thank you.